Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Hey everyone, Michelle here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is actually part one of a two-part series. Just listen to this one first, okay? Enjoy the show. Hi, Missy. Hi. I always do a little background. Um, Missy and I met first day, seventh grade, when she came up to me and told me Kira Gamalek wanted to invite me to a birthday party. I'm like, what is a Kira Gamalek? It's a name, evidently, but who also became one of my best friends. But Missy had no, she's the biggest extrovert I've ever met in my entire life. And we've been besties ever since. I've large group of best friends born out of that year. And um, we're all still thick as thieves. We've never gone probably more than a week without talking in our entire lives. So we know each other well. She knows what I'm going to do usually before I do it, which is good when I'm about to do something bad. So um, Missy's joining us from, we're not in the studio today, Missy's into her house. And um, we're going to be talking about, shocking, a serial killer. But this is a serial killer who I had actually never heard of, and he's not well known, but he should be. His name is Israel Keys, and he's a more recent serial killer, and he's one of, if not the most meticulous, well-organized serial killers I've ever looked into. I couldn't believe it. He's ahead of his time. Of course, he got caught. And there is, I should mention, a fundamental difference between serial killers who are caught and serial killers who are not caught. And we only study the ones who are caught. Had he not been caught, I think he would have gone on to be a very, very prolific and continued going. He managed to lead one of the most typical adult lives I've seen. Uh, in fact, when he was caught, and this happens a lot with this type of killer, when he was caught, authorities are like, are you kidding? It's this guy? He just he just seemed so normal. And I know that's a theme, but I saw the FBI interrogation videos. And Missy, he's a guy you definitely would have gone out with. I was like, is he cute? Yeah, he's cute. He's 100%. 100%. <laughs> 100% there would be red flags. Missy and I call them banderas rojas. <laughs> So authorities believe Israel Keys killed 11 people between 1996 and 2012 before he was ultimately caught. We're not completely sure who was his first kill, but we're going to start with which what I think is a harrowing kill. And it, it looks like it may have been his first kill. And it's it's a really sad story. It's a young girl named Julie Harris. Where was he from? Like, where was this taking place? Okay, so Washington, they're all over the country. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give it up. They're all over the country. We'll get into where he was raised. He moved around and he was very clever not to kill where he eats. And that's one of the most interesting things about this serial killer. And you're going to kind of see there are kills in between this, but you see the progression, what we call the evolution of a serial killer as we go through these murders. And this one, as I was looking into it, I'm like, oh, he's good. <laughs> he's 
he's um he has the same trajectory that we see, which is you have to keep ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. Mm-hmm. But he has an MO that adopts a victimology that is super successful for him. So I'll tell you a little bit about this girl. These were his murders that we believe happened between 96 and 97 in Colville, Washington. And she was a 12-year-old girl who was a Special Olympic medalist. Mm. Okay, so not only is she a child, she has a physical difference. Mm -hmm. March 3rd, 1996, Julie Harris is a 12-year-old little girl She's bright, she's active, and her parents describe her as a lover of God and a bit of a prankster. In addition to her being active in her church community, Julie is a double amputee. She competed and medaled in the Special Olympics in skiing. So she's a full stud, right? Like, Yeah, she's super, super driven. Yeah, she's driven and she's 12 and she's winning, you know, medals with double amputee. So she doesn't have legs. She's confident. Yes, So on March 3rd, on that Sunday, March 3rd in 1996, Julie was making her way to church, but devastatingly, she did not make it. And she's young, so this is noticed, you know, right away. Everyone's looking for her, no sign of her. Several weeks following her disappearance, Julie's remains were found three miles outside of Colville, Washington, including her prosthetic feet and a purse she always carried with her. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, how sad. She, Your child is already, you know, has challenges. She's clearly overcoming. And as her parents, imagine you're like, my kid no. has had to overcome so much. Well, and the parents do overcoming things too, all right. along the way. Being that's an, obviously they're encouraging and they're, you know what I mean? Just yeah. so involved in her life to even get her as far as she is. Yeah. While this is still an open investigation, Julie's mother, Sherry, has a strong feeling that Israel Keys murdered her daughter. 15 years after Julie's murder, with no solid leads, a reporter on his own called Sherry and asked her if she thought it would be possible that Israel Keys killed her daughter. And at the time, Sherry didn't even know who that was. She's like, what? Who's Israel Keys? Why should I even be considering that? But after she did some digging, she was looking through photos online, and then she just had a sickening feeling She was staring at her daughter's killer, and she just felt she knew it. She told a KHQ local news reporter, and I quote, I remember him at a house that Julie used to go to. So she remembered her daughter interacting with this man. So, I mean, it would be very surprising if this girl is killed by an unidentified murderer, but she's also hanging out with somebody who ends up becoming a serial killer. So, right. The mom also says that she recalled Keys, Israel Keys, hanging out and talking with Julie at a local swimming pool. Sherry said she had many previous mundane memories of Keys in the neighborhood, and they were all resurfacing for her. And finally, she says, I think there's something that will eventually show that my daughter was his first kill. Hmm. And to her point, it was around this time that Keys turned 18 and left Colville for good. Oh, well, how did the reporter know even come on Israel's, like, how did she even track him? Well, probably an investigative journalist was just, was, you know, looking into the serial killer mm-hmm. and was like, wait a minute, there was a, there's a unsolved, there's a cold case mm-hmm. right around when he was living there. Mm-hmm. So that's probably how it came to be. Ugh. So our next known assault was at the Deschutes River. So Keyes was, he was violent from when he was a child. 
but it was always toward animals, which is something, you know, we see, but something switched. It was either the summer of 1997 or 1998. And he, this is from Keyes' mouth. He says that he abducted an unidentified teenager. He did not know who she was while she was tubing with friends down the Deschutes River. He describes grabbing this teenage girl who was between 14 and 19 years old at the time. So she could have been very young. Mm -hmm. He grabbed her off her tube as she was floating down the river. I'm sorry. Let's just think about what that might have felt like. You're floating with your friends and all of a sudden a monster. I've been there, like done that, floating down rivers right? quite a few times in my life. Yes. (laughs) Well, imagine like somebody bubbling up and grabbing you. No, Nightmares are named of that. So... He grabs her, and he's obviously staked this location out because he brings her to an isolated bathroom near a campground. He tied her down with ropes, and he rapes her. His original plan, he says, was to kill the teen, use her body for a satanic ritual, and then dump her in the campground toilet pit. But this, as somebody who studies murderers, I love what he says next. He says, she's a pretty smart girl. You know, I was going to do... I was going to kill her, but she, it didn't get violent like it would have been. And, and she said things to him like, you're a really good looking guy. He's raping her. I was just talking about this yesterday, Michelle. I'm not even kidding. Like what would happen if somebody actually gave in and turned, flipped it on the, on the rapist. But I mean, I wonder if that would make them completely turned off. Well, in this case, she was just like, well, can you see you again? Uh But in this case, I don't know exactly the words she used, but she's told him he was a good looking guy and that she would have actually gone out with him. And that gave him whatever ego boost and kind of flipped him out of the mindset of, okay, I I rape and then I kill to I'm just going to let her go. Yeah. So he lets her go. Wow. You know, we believe this, this sweet Julie Harris is his first victim. But Keyes himself does not admit to killing anybody before 2001. And this is during his time in the army. Oh. Um, But he did admit that he killed four people in Washington who have never been identified or found. So it's kind of hard to peg exactly how his evolution. There's a misconception that serial killers keep their MOs the same. They don't. Mm -hmm. They evolve. And part of that's because they need to increase their high. That's so um, weird because you get so many like this, like him, for instance, what was it you said 90 or it was 1996, I think. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then he didn't kill again or didn't tr- rape or attack. And for what, three years? He probably did. So that's where we he, just, that's, it just, oh, it just goes on like unreported or whatever. And there, and there he is, by the way, dating, probably seeming normal to most people. I mean, what, I'm like 22 at that time. I, you know, you might, have, you might have dated him. I probably dated him 100%. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he just goes about this this just so casually through life, right? They're, they're sleepers almost. like get that sleeping thing. Well, and, and a lot of these serial killers, they're unsettled in their lives. They don't hold down jobs. They're not your impulsive killers who can't hold down a job because they're constantly in conflict with people. You know, those kind of murderers yeah. who just can't control their tempers. He's not like that. He is so brilliantly calculating. But his life kind of shows that as well. He's in the army. He hold down, holds down job. He's well-respected at work. Mm-hmm. Well-respected. Mm-hmm. So I bring this up just so we have an idea of just kind of the arc. We know, we think he killed Julie Harris. We know he attacked this this young girl, the Deschutes River. We know that, um, you know, he ha- has admitted to killing four people in Washington. But he's also a suspect 
in the Boca killings. So they called him the Boca killer. It was a string of killings, kidnappings, and robberies that occurred in 2007. And the police discovered a kit stashed by the killer, and it included everything he needed to carry this out, to carry out this crime. That's when you know you have a well-honed serial killer when they start putting kits out and and preparing in such a way that it takes months and months and months. That's somebody who is um, on the on the spectrum of serial killers. These are our most dangerous serial killers mm-hmm. because they're so good at it. Yeah, they're planning, they're plotting, they're thinking, they're obsessing. And they don't mess up. And they can delay gratification. They don't oh. need the instant rush. They just need to set it up so they can have their rush oh, down wow. the line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. these are people whose executive functioning, their frontal lobe, all of that's well intact, better than ours, better uh-huh. than ours. He is able to delay gratification. He knows he needs this high. He knows he, the urge is too great, but he's willing to wait for it mm. and do it right. Right. In June of 2011, Israel Keys landed at O'Hare National Airport in Chicago with one goal in mind, to find his next victims. And he had not chosen a specific person at this point But get this, he had stashed a kill kit in Essex, Vermont, a few years prior. So he left the airport and began driving east. He literally, across the country, left a murder kit. Right. And spoiler alert, he did this everywhere. He dropped kill kits around the freaking country so that in case he felt like killing, he could board a plane without any weapons Uh and land pick up his kit, and kill someone. That's how calculated he is. You don't hear that every day. No, you definitely don't hear that every day. That is no. shocking. Yeah. No. Now, really quick, what I'm just thinking is that I know, uh, you know, how not to raise a serial killer. Were there things about him as a child that when people look back that maybe seem like, because that's so meticulous, like to put this perfect kill, I don't even know if I could be that organized to set all these up. It's almost like an assembly line. Go somewhere, dig it, drop it, leave it, go here. I mean, it just seems like, what was his MO as a child? Do we know? We're going to get there. We are going to. You know, and I should have, I was supposed to mention this earlier. You know, you're a mom. You're a mom. And we're constantly looking at our children like, what does that mean? What yeah. does that mean? <laughs> I mean, how often do I get a phone call like, he just did this, you know, just did that. My kid just hit his head. I, I do it all the time. I'm like, why is my child doing this? Um, yeah. We're constantly right. looking for unusual behavior in our children. Right. Um, and which is why we're doing this podcast, because sometimes it freaking matters. So toting his kill kit, Keyes began to skulk around the suburban neighborhood. Creepy. And he, I mean, it's just dark. He's walking around and it looks like a medical kit. Mm-hmm. And in his words, he said, I decided I was going to look for a house with a couple in it. I was looking for a fairly easy way to get into the garage. And theirs was, you know, just the first house I found that had those things. Theirs, unfortunately, referred to this couple, the couriers. He also said that he looked in the backyard to see if anything would reveal a pet or children. Not because of, you know, I don't want to kill somebody in front of the kids, but because those are obstacles. They make Mm -hmm. it harder. It's much easier to go in and just handle the two people. So now he's decided he's already gone like the 12, the 14, or, you know, 14 to 16 year old. And now he's going on to adults. That's a great question. And there is a reason for that. And we'll Mm -hmm. get to it. But it's a really good thing that you point out right here. 
Okay, so Bill and Lorraine Courier were just your typical suburban couple. They were kind of homebodies. They were described as kind of being like they preferred to be secluded in their home with their pets. And attorney Tristan Coffin said, by all accounts, they were friendly, peaceful, good people who just encountered a force of pure evil at random. So after choosing Bill and Lorraine as his next victims, he enters his garage, which is a very, like he does his research, this guy does his research. Mm -hmm. He is smart. He knows it is much easier to gain access to the house if you're in the garage first. So you can hide in the garage and then decide when you're going to break into the actual house. Mm. He breaks the glass um, for like the interior door from the garage into the home has glass panels and he breaks it. And he says within five seconds, he's in their bedroom capturing them. Mm -hmm. Now, he is, has this so well thought out that he is able to subdue both of them. Mm. And they go down basically without a fight. So mm-hmm. after he he restrains them, it sounds like he, you know, and how did he know they weren't going to get up and start Or were they fighting? sleeping? Were they sound asleep? Yeah. Well, you're probably, you know, just totally discombobulated. Like, what is going yeah, on here? You're not, and to not, me, I'm assuming somebody's, if somebody's in my bedroom at night, I'm assuming that they're armed. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And he was. Yeah. He was. He said that after restraining the keys, Bill eventually does come. The dad, the husband, definitely does start like, okay, I'm not, I'm going to be less compliant. He breaks loose from his restraints, um, but before that happens, he actually put them in their own car mm-hmm. and brought them to an abandoned house. So he's he's got a plan, and usually yeah. once you're brought to another location, I mean, he was going to kill him anyway. But yeah. Bill saw the gun. He started to say something, but he's like, okay, I'm not going to. I'm not going to piss this guy off. So they're at this this other location. Lorraine, Lorraine gets out. He get she gets untied because he put them in different rooms. He tackles Lorraine. He beats her up a little bit, and then he goes back for Bill. He raped Lorraine in front of Bill. Like oh. Bill wasn't watching it, but he could hear it. Ah, uh, so bad. So then he and goes, they're in this abandoned house. They're in this abandoned house. Okay, and Bill has not gotten out yet. He got away at some point, I think, before they got to the abandoned house. But then with the gun, he's just like, okay. And his wife's there. Yeah. So they're at this abandoned house. The Lorraine got out of her restraints. Keys goes, rapes her, beats her up, ties her up again. And then uh, Keys kills Bill. Ugh. He shoots him. Then he goes back for Lorraine and he strangles her to death. Mm. So... What stood out to me in this killing is, or these killings, is that he restrained them at their own house and he gets them to get into their own car and he drives them to this abandoned house. And then he, you know, rapes her, kills both of them and leaves them there. He leaves the bodies there. Mm -hmm. But the plot thickens. That house was actually set up to be demolished. People in the neighborhood were sick of People like Keys coming in there. People would go in there and squat. It was an abandoned house. Yeah. So after this happens, so the couriers are missing. People have no idea even where to begin looking for him. Somewhere between that and Keys getting caught, the house is demolished. So their bodies end up in a landfill. Despite 12 weeks of searching for the bodies, tons of people digging through trash. The the entire crime scene post was there. Right. They never found him. They never oh found him. Oh my gosh. Oh, I, that's kind of surprising that people didn't go over there like even teenage kids to party, you know, like we yeah. used to do. Um, well, they did. They went to there all the time to party, but, but the house, but after they that, didn't find the bodies. Surprised, yeah. Yeah. You know? No, that's true. Uh, that's true. And they must have been there long enough, dead long enough, because although they didn't find the bodies um, in the landfill, 
they were so sad not to be able to bring the bodies home to the families. Mm -hmm. They brought a cadaver dog back to the demolished house. There was a, a, a small part of the basement that remained and the cadaver dog picked up the scent. So, wow. and what the cadaver dog's trained to do is pick up cadaver smell, not the smell of the couriers particularly. Mm -hmm. But the, so that was hopefully closure that like they did die. They were here. Right. Now they're in the landfill and there's nothing we can do about it. Was he admitting it? Did he admit that they actually, he did it there? Yes. And he ended up admitting everything? Oh, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And at the time that the investigators discovered he had murdered the couriers, Keyes was already in custody. Uh -huh. And his response was, wow, yeah, I'm impressed. Well, I'm disappointed in myself mostly, but I'm still impressed that they'd put it together. So again, he admits that there's other people. Now, when he's being held, and we'll talk about how he got caught, but while I'm telling these stories, I want you to think about, he, we have this information, most of it, through him. So mm -hmm. he was super impressed that, you know, they'd figured out about the, you know, some of these crimes themselves. But he's using these details as bargaining chips because he's now in custody. Oh, uh-huh. So the last victim I'm going to tell you about is um, the victim that actually led to Keyes being arrested and us knowing about all of these other murders. His final victim was Samantha Koenig. And this is the most notorious of his murders. This one was televised. Um, and this obviously eventually led to his arrest. I talked about how he was such an incredibly meticulous killer. He screwed up. This is the only person he killed near where he lives. Oh. Everyone else, he was bebopping all around, you know, hiding his kill kits. Right, and, right. Kill kits all over the place. Smart dude. He's like, I'm not, they're going to be strangers to me and they're not going to be anywhere near I live. Mm -hmm. How hard? You can't find that guy, right? So on February 1st, 2012, Samantha Koenig, she's 18, she arrived at where she, her job, it was in a roadside espresso. You remember my mom's roads, yes. my mom's espresso, yep. just an espresso hut, right? Uh -huh. So, and she was going to begin the evening shift. She had the latest shift that day. It was around 8 p.m. So it's the late, the, the last shift. Mm -hmm. She's on it. And um, so around 8 p.m., it's not, it's not that late of a shift. She decides to close the shop. She's tidying up. There's video of this. There's, because the, the, coffee shop had a camera in it so mm -hmm. we see this a man walks up to the window and orders a coffee we have footage of samantha making the coffee she's seen handing him the coffee and then she bounces back and it's oh. it's chilling and she holds her hands up it's super chilling to watch and then he must have said something to her yeah to freak her out about what to, well he i think he had a gun Oh. And, um, but he said something to her that made her do this. She starts turning off all the lights. So he must have said, like, turn off the lights. Yeah. Keep her hands up. Well, he had his and plan because he's, he's planned everything out. Yeah. And he crawls through the window. So no. now he, yeah. How old is she? Do we think? 18. She's 18? Oh my gosh. So all now right. she's in the hut with him. And then he takes her and leads her out of the hut and then some outside no, don't leave yeah, the hut don't do not leave, leave the, the first location yeah some surveillance like footage like that outside some i don't know if it was recorded from another shop or street something but there's footage of them walking together toward his car it's horrible she's missing her dad is on air i've seen this footage too begging super close with his only daughter Ugh. please bring her back take me instead 
we need her back. There's vigils. There's, it's such a big deal. Um, oh, and did I mention? This is Anchorage, Alaska. Oh, no, you did not mention. Yeah. Oh, so I kind of, okay. I talk about where he moves around later. Yeah. But this is, you know, this is he not. Went pretty far not, on that one. He, he yeah. ventured pretty far. I mean, I'm sure he didn't have well, a kill kit up in Anchorage. No, because he lives there now. Oh, so this is the right. only one he killed near his home. Oh, and we're going to get into right. what his trajectory, because I think it plays a lot, large part in how he became this meticulous serial killer. So her dad, it's all over the media. Everyone's looking for her. And 10 days following her disappearance, her boyfriend, so her boyfriend was supposed to pick her up that night. He goes and picks her up. He's like, where is she? And that night... She get, he gets a text saying, oh, hey, I'm going to spend a couple days with my friends. Tell my dad. And he's like, uh-uh, that's not. She's been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. So 10 days after that, he receives another text from Samantha's phone. And, and it was while the community was holding a vigil for her. The text read, to look in Connor Park under a pic of Albert. It also said, ain't she purdy? So everyone at the what? vigil runs to the park, right? I mean, this is... Timing's everything. The crowd scoured the area for the pick of Albert until a young girl found a sign for a lost dog, Albert. Mm. Underneath the photo was a plastic bag, and it had one photograph. No one touched it. They just called the police. The police come. They grab the bag. They search it, and it contains a ransom note, a photo of Samantha holding a newspaper, and I'm sure that's done so that you can see the date yeah, that it's yeah. out. And a request for $30,000 to be deposited into Samantha's bank account. The killer had her debit card. And after several deposits and the police chasing the trail, um, he's left behind. So he would go up, he would withdraw the money with his ATM. He'd take the daily limit, the $500 daily limit. And this is his town. This is his town. So this is, he's getting a little sloppy, probably a little brazen and emboldened by the fact that he's been so careful and nothing's ever even come close that he's probably like, I don't even need to be that careful. Um, But they finally identified his car because they keep seeing this white Ford Focus in the back of these ATM shots. So when he goes to the ATM, he's all masked up. Yeah. But when did did he start to, when did he turn in from this like killing a 12 year old, you know, handicapped girl to all of a sudden like ransom notes? And so we don't know this at the time, but once he's in custody, we found out that one of his favorite thrills is bank robbing. Oh. Okay. Yes. So he was probably doing that the whole time we never knew. Yes. Okay. Right. So everyone thinks everyone's profiling a serial killer. Yeah. Or I mean, when it's just Samantha, they're just profiling a killer in general. And it turns out he's, you know, he he likes he likes all sorts of different thrills. So you can't really profile this guy. I mean, there was the, any profile would have been incorrect, really. Right. Well, he. Yeah. I mean, th- at this point, they don't know they're dealing with a serial yeah. killer. They think they're just. But as even as the bodies start piling up this bank robbing thing is a little unusual. You know, mm-hmm. it's sometimes you'll see them stealing or or robbing people because they need to keep funding their spree. Yeah. But this guy's going to banks. When you're going to banks, you're looking for a thrill. Mm-hmm. So they found his car. Some, some very alert police officer had seen this Bolton come, come through looking for white forward focus. And then he sees one drive by and he pulls, pulls them. Eventually the guy makes some traffic error so he gets pulled over. The guy searches his car. Lo and behold, it's him. He's arrested. So now law enforcement knows that they have most likely Samantha Koenig's killer. They don't know that he's a serial killer yet. Mm-hmm. And during his interrogation, 
he revealed the gruesome truth about what he had done to Samantha. So after jumping into the coffee shop, he brought her to a shed on his property. So he has gone from killing people in other places of the country to killing them at his house. Right, bringing them home. Bringing them home. The reason he's in his shed with her is because his daughter and girlfriend are in the house. No. Yeah, whole time. So he brings her to the shed, he turns up the music, and he rapes her. Ugh. Then he ties her up really tightly and just goes into his house to hang out with his girlfriend and his daughter. Oh, my gosh. Later, so here's the thing. He kept her alive for a hot minute because he needed this scheme, this whole debit card. He had to go back, actually. Like, at one point, he didn't have everything he needed. So he has to wait. He has to keep her alive for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um Once he decides to kill her, he strangles and stabs her to death. And then he leaves on a two-week cruise with his family. No. And leaves her in the shed? Yes. No. Oh, my gosh. Wow. But because it's Alaska and it's so cold, her body was conveniently preserved, which I assume he knew. Because then he returns back to the shed and he braids her hair. Like he does his daughters, he said. What? I just braided her hair like I do my daughters. What? He sews open her eyes to make her look alive. It's not, she's now played all for him. And then takes that photo so that he can put it with the ransom note in the park. Oh, So now my he goodness. can utilize the ATM card that he had gone and retrieved. Oh, because he needs the money. He needs the money. And yeah. I think it also increases, it ups the ante. It increases the the thrill that he's getting from these kills. Because mm-hmm. now it's like cat and mouse. Ma- like cat and mouse. Like I now I have her. She's alive. Let's see what I can make you guys do. Yep. Yep. And, and he is actually getting the money. So it's not like yeah. he just asked for the money and didn't do anything with yeah. it. Yeah. They're like little marionettes for him. He's just telling everybody what to do. Yeah. So Keyes told investigators that he did not necessarily have a victim profile but he considered children and parents off limits because of his daughter. And his, I call bullshit. I, I call too. bullshit. Yeah. His main focus was not getting caught. Yeah. And by the way, to me, a 12-year-old is a child. Well, see, Julie Harris died. That predates the birth of his child. So, so he had to have a child to of, have. Oh, I see. But I call bullshit. I think it probably, and it could. Listen, people like him, they don't have remorse, guilt, remorse, guilt empathy, but it it could have it could have something to do with his his child, but I I don't think it's what he's reporting it to be. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into a little bit more of why I think it's more nuanced. His profile does jump all over the place. I mean, at one point he talks about how he was just in a park and he just needed the kill again. He needed it. He's kind of lost his ability to. I mean, he went from super meticulous, and had he not screwed up, had he not gotten caught i think he if he'd gotten close to being caught he probably would gone have gone back to his more meticulous style right um but he was needing the the instances between his kills the time between his kills we believe was becoming shorter and shorter so he right. was needing the thrill more often he was ha- he wasn't having that um like you were saying earlier he could fight the urge and the urge now was getting too strong where he couldn't fight it anymore maybe age right. had something to do with it we don't know but Right. Yeah, he couldn't fight it anymore. So while his prime motive was enjoyment and just like the thrill of getting away with it and killing someone, he was, as I say, he was so careful. He did. 
say this himself. He said, I prefer to seek out victims in places where people tend to disappear without cause. So he's looking at campsites, public parks, hiking trails. He never had a personal connection with his victim. Mm -hmm. He never, until Samantha Koenig killed close to his home, and he always left the scene immediately after killing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is really advanced serial killing. He knows he's doing it very, very well. You know what's freaking me out right now, too, is thinking about the fact that he does have a child and he's sitting there driving his daughter to school and dropping her off, picking her up lunches. Think about all the stuff we do as parents every single day. Hi, Tim, when you're dropping off your kids at school. And little do you know that Tim is, you know, plotting out some crazy scheme to kill the 18 year old at the coffee where you get your, you know, the coffee shop where you get your coffee. At this point, the people—it's so crazy. And at this point, the people who do know him from school are are the only safe ones because he doesn't kill anybody he knows. Oh gosh! At this, this I just surround myself with serial killers. Is what you're saying? That's right. That's right. Well, (laughs) this type of serial killer. (laughs) Only (laughs) way you're safe. And and what's so absurd about all of this is that, like, yes, in this particular case, having your friends close and your serial killer closer is safer. (laughs) Um, you know, he's been—he has been called among the top three, like this, I'm trying to remember who who said this was an expert. Peters said this. He's among the top three organizers, thinkers, and planners that he'd ever studied in terms of serial killers. And as I'm looking at him, I I do not know his equal. Like he's that good. Wow. So- Well, and he's all over the place too. So it's kind of like, how do you, even if you did try to profile and you don't, I mean, we don't know yet that he's done all these other things, but what if you did? It's he's even if even putting it all together, it's still confusing. And he he almost has us. He still has us confused. Well, and he uses that to his um, benefit when he's caught because he wants certain things Ah. and he's he's bargaining with the interrogators. So Mm. he's releasing just and he's in complete control because he wants to be in control and he releases just a few details at a time. Ah. And then you have this whole giant team of investigators trying to put it together. You know, for three months, they all sat on a pit of garbage while they tried to find bodies you know it, it, it's really disturbing and again like you said marionettes everybody's doing his bidding based on what he tells them and it's a, it's a point of power yeah so i want to talk to you a little bit about these kill kits because they're fascinating yeah i'm actually really interested in hearing about these kill kits yeah they included money mm-hmm. guns duct tape rope drano lie and anything else he would need to kill his victims and dispose of their bodies. Hmm. I was surprised a little bit about the guns when you said about Bill back in the the shed or the yeah the courier house yeah the couriers. I was surprised they used a gun because number one, it just seems too easy for him, and that he wouldn't get that much of a thrill out of killing versus like strangulation or something. You know, well, he may have used a gun with if I were just to profile it, he may have used a gun with Bill because it's a man, a man. But yeah, when he's strangling, maybe he was like rape, I mean, not to be gory, but yeah. maybe raping and strangling at the same time and looking at her. Oh, God. That's the thrill. And that's not uncommon for serial uh-huh. killers is to get an actual, sometimes it's a sexual thrill. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's just a high. That's why that one, the one girl got let go was maybe because she wasn't giving into that, like that exact experience that he was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, she promised him she would never tell a soul. And from what I can tell, she didn't. Really? Yeah. From what I can tell. Well, how did she, so, how did they ever, anybody ever know about it though? Because he said it, he told. Oh, Ooh, maybe he yeah. wanted people to know because she, it was him getting back at her even wanting control of that. 
We don't know. Uh, and he said for years he beat himself up for not killing her. He regretted letting her go. And and I don't think a subsequent victim could have used that trick she used of like, hey, cutie. Like, yeah. I don't think. And it's I'm sure one, it's it a like one that. time only deal. Because then he's like, dang it, I got had. Yeah. Like once bitten, twice shy. <laughs> Remember that 80s movie? No, because I'm so young. I don't. <laughs> okay. So I had forgotten he actually did. He actually did answer your question he said yeah i have guns he said while well, these knives include or these kits included guns he told investigators at one point this is deep in here that i didn't even remember that he preferred to strangle he only used the guns when he had to mm-hmm. and you know as we suspect they like watching the struggle yeah and bill was so, maybe bill was big too a little bit bigger. Bill, i've seen pictures yeah. yeah uh here's how's this for a statistic <laughs> he had at least a dozen kill kits planted across the country what that what is, is not in- what did he do for a living by the way where he could just hop in his car and start dropping off kill kits i don't know my big day is a little bit busy like i really don't have time to go to vermont drop off a kill kit when i'm in california like i you, no no well we're about to find out because okay. i'm going to tell you a little bit more about his childhood and his adolescence okay. and how he ended up dropping off kill kits also <laughs> not inexpensive to create the kill kit not inexpensive to buy a plane ticket or to drive to these remote locations to drop them off. Like, and how does he pick? He's like, oh gosh, you know, Vermont's so beautiful this time of year. Right. How does that work? Exactly. Exactly. All right. Hold on to your hats and glasses because I, it's going to get a little wild here. <laughs> Israel Keyes was born January 7th, 1978 in Richmond, Utah to Heidi and John Keyes. He is the second of their 10 children and due to his parents' distrust of the government and modern medicine, all 10 of their children were born at home with no medical assistance. Ouch. And all were homeschooled. Okay, so we're not starting with the most normal upbringing. Are we to assume that he is part of a congregation of some sort of religious grouping, if you will? Did you read ahead? So he and his family were ap- actually, they got up and moved when he was five. They had become more and more paranoid into their in their belief system, which we'll talk about. And they were they're from more a Mormon background. They're ex-Mormons, but they became far more fundamentalist than any Mormons you're gonna see. Like they they went all the way deep into their uh, their Christianity in a very unique way. So he picks up the mom and dad pick up these 10 kids and they move to a very remote one-room cabin, one room with no running water or electricity, north of Colville, Washington. Mm. That's a lot. That's 12 people to that's, have in one room. Yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty crazy right there. That's intense. Because of that, he, he Israel and his siblings were forced to sleep outside in tents growing up. And it is not warm there in no, winter. No, uh-uh. no, not at all. In so, tents? Tents. So growing up, he's and his siblings were pressured by their parents to help bring in some money. So they would work on local farms. Their mother's extreme religious beliefs caused her to restrict their access to anything outside of her kind of influence. So no television, no movies, no musical instruments, because those were all against God. So as you correctly guessed, they were part of two different congregations, two different white supremacist Mm. congregations. The first was a church called The Ark, and they practiced anti-Semitic, white supremacist, Christian identity ideology. So there's a lot of hate in that. Right. Let's just Well, and the fact that he's growing up with a mom that's telling him what he can and can't do. 
uh, yeah. Right? And I mean, not only can and can't do, but you certainly don't need any running water or electricity or school. Right. Or you don't need that any, matter. Warm, any place you warm know. to sleep. No. The other church that they spent time with is called the Christian Israel Covenant Church. And that church taught British Israelism as doctrine. They believed that, get this, Anglo-Saxons were to, like, primarily from the area, that area, mm-hmm. from Brit, like, all of the UK, I believe. Maybe it's just, you know, it, who knows how the maps were drawn at that point. But the, the white Europeans from that area were to rule over other races. And that miscegenation was sinful. Miscegenation is mirroring somebody outside of your race. Keyes described both the church as more of a militia than churches, like they were more militant. And you got to think, well, let's talk a little bit about what British Israelism is. It's like, they call, it's considered pseudo-archaeological, pseudo-historical, pseudo-religious. And it's this belief that I said that people from Great Britain are genetically, radically, and linguistically the direct descendant of the 10 lost tribes of ancient Israel. They are superior. Their breed needs to be kept pure. And you're going to hell if you're interacting with somebody who's not of that very specific group of people. Oh, by the way, hence his name. You know, I think he was named before they got there. So I'm sure that mm. felt like, you know, and that's that's where they are in the Bible. Like, they're so deep. So naming the child Israel is probably fitting all into this narrative. Mm-hmm. So oddly enough, while he attended the Keys, this is a weird, like, plot twist. Keys became friends with the family of Chevy Kehoe. Chevy Kehoe would later go on to be convicted of a triple murder in 1996. Wait, Chevy so, Kehoe became, a, he's a friend of Israel's? Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. okay. He too became a murderer. So during his childhood, growing up in the weirdest childhood. Right. And it's, you can see how it's not going to lead to good outcome anyway. That childhood is going to, it's going to, it's, you know, Hopefully, most of the kids have whatever protective factors that you know, lead them not to become killers. But it's just not the warmest, most lovely place. You're being bred to hate anyway. Like, you're being raised to hate. You're being raised to consider other humans not human. Right. You know, you're being taught that if unless they're just exactly like you, they're not real people. They're not worthy of, of you know, whatever it is that makes us the, the superior race. So... And this is important. During his childhood, Keyes grew up loving to hunt. He loved mm. to kill, mm-hmm. is actually. He says he loved to hunt. I'd say he loved to kill. And he said he'd kill anything with a heartbeat. Oh. And he regularly tortured and kills animals mm-hmm. um, throughout his childhood. Mm-hmm. An old acquaintance of his said that Keyes confessed to him that he gutted a deer alive. Oh, my goodness. And your Missy's an avid cat lover, much to my chagrin because I'm allergic. But um, in another violent act, he's tied his his own pet. You know, it's a whole different ballgame when you're killing your own pet. Yeah, yeah. Kide, he tied his family cat to a tree with a parachute cord. And in front of his friends, he shot it with a 22 revolver. In the re- his response, Key's response to watching this cat, the cat like walked around the tree a few times and then like ran into the tree and just died. He starts laughing. Oh, his friend starts vomiting because his friend is a normal human. Right, right. I mean, and that to me is like, I can see that visual. Like, and he's just like, and he said something along the lines of, oh, whoops. Am I not supposed to be laughing? He couldn't figure out why his friend was upset. It's not even his friend's pet. It's his pet. Yeah, yeah. 
it's just it's just what they say, right? It's 101 of like the serial killer being <laughs> created right there. It's almost like he read the book. Yeah. Another concerning hobby including included um, starting fires in the woods. And we always see that, you know, the fires, the 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 pets. There's always like the yeah. here ramp up to becoming a serial killer. <laughs> By age 14, Keys realizes, and probably not too far after this whole killing of the cat incident, he's like, Oh, I realize I'm not like my peers. They kept gawking at him and 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 being shocked at his propensity for violence. Well, maybe at this point too, being like, um, you're kind of weird. Like, what's up with right. you? Making fun of him a little bit. He's starting to get a little insecure about before it's funny. Now it's like, uh-oh. Yeah. So he's weird and he's violent. And as it's increasing, he's realizing he's not a dumb guy. The guy's brilliant. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, I'm different. And he, he said, I thought that people were pretending to be nice and that they all felt like me, but they were just faking it. And then he realized, oh, I'm going to need to be the one. I'm the one pretending. Like, they actually do feel nice and and care about, nice about people and care about people and animals. And he's like, I did not realize that I'm the only one who doesn't feel that. Right. He says it was after watching his friend vomit when he tortured the cat. He says everybody got sick and ran away from him. And he realized, I realized I should shut up about this stuff because I'm different. Mm-hmm. And that's not unusual for this type of person. Right. We'll talk about that. In his late teens, the Keys family moves again. This time they moved to an Amish community in Smyrna, Maine. And it was here that Israel Keys grew tired of the restrictions that his parents' religion imposed upon him. Up to that point, surprisingly, he'd actually kept a journal of Bible scriptures and a catalog of his daily sins, which I imagine were plentiful. I wonder if he recorded things like the animals, maybe because he didn't think it was a sin at the time. Because remember, to him, it was kind of like, ha ha ha, this is normal. Well, I wonder if that stuff was even cataloged. I I imagine that he thought that you know, okay, everyone feels like this, but we have the Bible to tell us that we can atone. And like, because he described shock for when he realized that other people didn't want to do these things. So Keyes, he claims to have felt guilt for lusting after his girlfriend, but he has no idea what that word means. So these are just like declarations that he's making so that he has things, you know, because he's raised that you have to constantly atone, constantly How, how atone. old do we think he is now when he's now at the- He's in his te- uh, late the, teens. At the Amish? Okay. He's in his late teens. Mm-hmm. So eventually he um, renounces the Christian faith. He declares himself as an atheist and he tells his parents. He eventually- develops an interest in Satanism, but for now, he's just an atheist. And after confessing his loss of faith to his mom and dad, they're so deeply steeped in their religion, they they shunned him, kicked him out, told him he was blasphemous, and that was it. Yeah. He was excommunicated from the family. So around this time, Keyes became infatuated with infamous serial killers. And of course, his idol was Ted Bundy, which, you know, come on, you got to <laughs> dig deeper. Uh, so he, I think, probably figured out that there are a group of people who feel this way, who feel like he feels, and I well, suspect he has he, something in common with. Yeah, right. And he probably learned a great deal. Yeah. He's such a good serial killer. He probably learned a great deal of how to do it from studying them. Uh-huh. That is me guessing because he had opinions. He said that he admitted that his idol was Ted Bundy. He called Dennis Radar a wimp because he couldn't understand why he came out and said he was sorry for everything he'd done. So he didn't respect him because he did that. And um, Keyes also confessed that his serial killers were the ones who had 
had not been caught, haven't been caught. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once he's caught, that's a huge failure for him. Yeah. Because his idols are all of these serial killers who have gotten away with it. Right. And then, you know, he ends up not being one of them. Okay, so now he's an adult. And from 1998 to 2001, he served as a gunner in the U.S. Army. No kidding? You We're going to teach him. We're going to teach him how to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> During his time in the military, he was awarded an Army Achievement Medal. And while Keyes did make friends during his military stint, one of them recalled that, and this guy's named Sean McGuire, he recalled that he felt Keyes had a dark side to him and drank heavily. Mm. So while he's stationed at Fort Lewis Army Base, Keyes becomes involved with the Macaw Indian tribe woman. So he's gone from being in a church where you can't even hook up with somebody who's not from you know, Great Britain yeah. to I'm dating um, a Native American. Right. So it's kind of an interesting departure. I don't know if he ever bought into any of it. He beats to his own drum anyway, but they end up having a child together. They have a daughter. And then Keyes is honorably discharged from the military in 2001. I don't know why, but it's not dishonorable. So I'm assuming it's uneventful. After leaving the army, Keyes moved to the Macaw Reservation with his girlfriend and his child, and he worked for the tribal authority. And it was there that he told investigators that he committed his first murder. I don't believe that. Is that, where's that tribal land? It's in Washington. So he hasn't left Washington at this point. Okay. Okay. So he tells investigators that that's where he committed his first murder because uh, Nea Bay is a boring town, he said. And he told investigators that he killed four people while living on the Macaw Reservation, but these murders are not confirmed and the identities of the victims are not known. So we don't know if this is true, not true, but we know he probably didn't kill close to where he's living because this is his, at this point, you know, he's he's been studying serial killers and he p- becomes one of the greatest. So he's already careful enough, so careful that we have no idea even who those people are. I assume I assume it's true. I mm-hmm. assume he's not. He wasn't the type of serial killer to add numbers to make him look like he's the most prolific. Mm-hmm. Being prolific wasn't what he admired in those particular serial killers. It was um, getting away with it. Mm-hmm. So Keyes and his daughter end up moving to Anchorage, Alaska in 2007 with his new girlfriend. Oh, okay. So this says something about the guy. <laughs> like, you're a emotionless, vacuous, horrifying, unhuman monster, but you braid your daughter's hair and you become, because he, it was his idea to become a single parent. He took his daughter from his daughter's mother, who he believed had a drinking problem. Oh, I was going to say, how was it like, what did she do so wrong to not be able to have her daughter? So this was his idea. He moves to Anchorage and he starts a company and he's killing it. Really? He starts his own business called Keys Construction, very mm-hmm. convenient last name for him. Mm-hmm. And people describe him as a doting father, um, a, a, a trustworthy and reliable businessman. He is one of the most successful psychopaths, psychopathic serial killers in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's doing pretty well. Now, we can talk about whether or not he really loved his daughter later on, but... I think it's important to to not ignore that, that he is a unique, he's a unique serial. Not, not only has his, are his killings really sophisticated, but his station in life. Even if he hadn't had serial killing tendencies, it's kind of hard to pull yourself out of that weird, traumatizing childhood and function as a typical normal adult. Yeah. But he's, he not only 
you know, pulled himself out of that very odd upbringing. He's also a killer. Right. So, but he's and, a successful person outside of that, like in, mm-hmm. in yeah. society, he's got a business, he's doing well. Right. He has a, you know, a girlfriend, a daughter looks totally normal. Yeah. Usually those kinds of people too, with the kill kits and everything, you kind of think of them as like, I don't know, just, I don't, I don't think of them as like running some company and being, you almost have to be a little bit of an extrovert to do that. Cause you're speaking with so many people. Yeah. So here's the thing. Psychopathic serial killers are usually pretty social. They're, they're charismatic. They are, you know, they are the real snakes in the grass Mm -hmm. because often they have some elements of their need for their next um, sensation, their thrill seekers. So well, let's talk about who he, we think he is. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H N. T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaserialkiller at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818-392-4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.